Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of the Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. I hope everyone is healthy and safe. For many, it seems like the stay-at-home orders have been in effect for a very long time. We are all settling into our new normal, where there are far fewer boundaries between work, home, and leisure. I truly appreciate everyone who's been listening, especially in this stressful time. Our topic for today is false confessions. This is one of my favorite topics because there's so much interesting research that's been done in this area. And despite this research and efforts to educate and train law enforcement, there's still a lot of misinformation that's spread and perpetuated by poor investigative procedures. The general public and juries hold confessions to be true until proven otherwise, when there should be much more scrutiny for any confession. We'll talk about different kinds of confessions, the research on false confessions, and case examples that highlight the destruction false confessions can create. It's nearly impossible to measure incidents or prevalence of false confessions because we don't know the absolute truth about every case. There are some troubling statistics that we do know, however. About 30% of over 300 Innocence Project DNA exonerations involved a false confession. Confessions are still considered the gold standard in evidence, where they often trump DNA evidence. Juries often commit fundamental attribution error when a confession is introduced into a case. It effectively squashes any variability in jury decisions. The fundamental attribution error is when actions speak louder than words. In this case, the person confesses, and the act of confessing is overemphasized by juries. They tend to underemphasize the situational or external factors that affect the behavior itself, like coercion and other manipulative techniques. Unfortunately, juries in general aren't very concerned with coercion used by investigators to elicit the confession. They often don't understand the powerful psychological manipulation someone goes through before that person confesses. That lack of understanding puts a lot of innocent people in jail. Mock jury studies have shown that people don't sufficiently discount confessions even when it was legally and logically appropriate to do so. Hugo Munsterberg was probably the first known psychologist to express opinions about false confessions in his book On the Witness Stand. He believed there were situations where innocent people would confess and believe they were guilty. You might find it hard to believe that a truly innocent person would ever confess to a crime they didn't commit but there are a lot of psychological tactics that investigators can use and abuse to elicit these types of confession from anyone. As I told my students, everyone has a breaking point. They just might differ from yours or mine. Part of the problem is what is allowed, at least in the United States, during an interrogation. Police are allowed to lie to suspects, telling them that they found evidence of the crime scene or promising a suspect that they'll get off if they admit to committing the crime. And innocent people will naively trust the justice system. They often waive their Miranda rights because they don't think they need them. In some cases, police employ subtle and effective tactics to elicit Miranda right waivers, accounting for close to 80% of the waiver rate. Some people are willing to do whatever investigators ask them to do to get out of that situation including confessing when they know they're innocent. 
They believe that the justice system will find that they did not commit the crime and not hold the false confession against them. Other people become convinced after hours of questionable interrogation techniques that they must have committed the crime but forgot or repressed the memory. Our brains are constantly trying to rationalize the world around us, so when we're confronted with information implicating us in a crime, even though it's false information, we want to create a narrative that fits that situation instead of continually living in a competing state. The presentation of false information by investigators creates cognitive dissonance that's difficult for us to handle on a psychological level. Everyone's tolerance for cognitive dissonance is different, but at a certain point, we all break. There are three types of false confession I'd like to highlight. The voluntary false confession is self-incriminating. It's usually purposely offered without any outside police pressure. This is a really perplexing type of confession that psychologists have a hard time explaining. In some cases, there are people who confess to protect friends or family members, and this is often the case for juvenile defenders. There are others who don't seem to have any tangible reason to falsely confess, but it's theorized that they may do so out of a desire for fame, recognition, or notoriety. One of the most famous examples of a voluntary false confession is connected to the JonBenet Ramsey case. Nearly 10 years after she was murdered, a man came forward claiming to be responsible. His name was John Mark Carr, a 41-year-old teacher living in Bangkok at the time. The Boulder County District Attorney didn't pursue the case, though, since DNA from the scene didn't match Carr. We can't really be sure why Carr was so eager to confess, but he may have done so to draw attention away from another crime he committed while abroad. The second type of false confession I want to talk about is coerced compliant false confessions. Those occur when a suspect confesses but knows that they are innocent. This type of confession usually occurs after a very lengthy and extreme interrogation by police. Many confessions elicited through torture, threats, and false promises are believed to be coerced compliant confessions. What is so troubling is that these tactics are not only illegal, but encouraged by many police departments. The read technique has been used for many years as an interrogation technique used to elicit confessions, though it may be responsible for a great number of false confessions. It's a guilt-presumptive process that uses a number of psychological techniques to diagnose and determine deception. The end goal of this process is to elicit a confession. Those trained in this technique have a dangerous mix of low accuracy and high confidence. They use custody and isolation to disorient suspects. They gradually escalate the techniques over time using confrontation or maximization and minimization techniques to encourage the suspect to confess. Maximization techniques are aggressive in nature. They'll make accusations, they'll lie about evidence, they often say things like, I know you did this or I already know you're guilty. Whereas minimization techniques are designed to convince the suspect that confessing is their best option or the most rational option for them. They'll use sympathy and understanding to make the suspect more comfortable. They normalize the crime and falsely promise leniency. And all these tactics are highly problematic and increase the chance of eliciting a false confession. And yet, they're completely legal. These techniques were used and worked on Brendan Dassey. 
Stephen Avery's cousin from the Netflix documentary series, Making a Murderer. There are many other aspects of Brendan's case that are problematic, including his low IQ and age at the time of interrogation. But if we just focus on the interrogation style itself, we'll see typical read techniques being used. Investigators steer the conversation to make sure Brendan includes information specific to the crime. It's pretty clear when you watch the tape of his confession that he's looking to investigators to feed him details. They're using leading questions and introducing details that were not in the public domain. This makes the confession seem more credible to a jury. If the suspect knows details the public doesn't, then they had to have been there, right? Well, it turns out 95% of false confessions contain facts about the crime that were not in the public domain. They were either planted or suggested by police and are seen as typical indicators of false confessions. Most people, when presented with false incriminating evidence, may believe the police have this evidence against them and confess as a way to avoid more severe punishment, or they want to end the stress of the interrogation believing that they won't be able to convince the investigators of their innocence at that time. Again, they naively think their innocence will be proven later. The investigators in Brendan's case use a lot of minimization techniques on Brendan, including false promises that he'll be able to go home if he talks. After the interrogation, he even tells his mom, they got in my head. He was a 17-year-old boy with a low IQ, trying not to get in trouble and appease the cops. Of course he said what they told him to say. I'll talk more about Brendan in a future episode because it's one of those cases that keeps me up at night. There's no reason he should be in jail right now. The final type of false confession we'll talk about today is coerced internalized false confessions. Those occur when an innocent suspect starts to actually believe they committed the crime. There are many factors that can play into this, including anxiety, fatigue, pressure, confusion, and suggestive methods by police. With this type of confession, the person's memory is altered so that they actually remember committing the crime when they had nothing to do with it. There's research that suggests introducing misleading information after an event can actually alter the reported memories or actual memory of the observed event. There's a very troubling case that highlights this type of confession, and that's of Paul Ingram. A spiritual healer at a church retreat in 1988 convinced Paul's daughter that he had sexually abused her as a child. His daughter, Erica, later told police that her father had molested her and her sister for years and claimed Paul was also involved in satanic rituals where babies were sacrificed. Paul was arrested and underwent numerous interrogations along with hypnotherapy. He was also told by someone claiming to be a police psychologist that sex offenders often repress memories of the crimes they commit. Paul was subjected to interrogations and suggestive hypnosis sessions for five months, after which he confessed to sexually assaulting his daughters and sacrificing infants in satanic rituals. He claimed he had memories of these events in graphic detail. Thankfully, there was a doctor whose expert testimony was being used at the time who thought this was all BS. He decided to test his theory that the memories were implanted in Paul by introducing false memories of his own to Paul. After repeated questioning, Paul began to remember 
these false events concocted by the doctor. Unfortunately, this demonstration didn't alter the outcome of the case. Paul requested a change to his plea, but that was denied, and he was sentenced to 20 years in prison for crimes he never committed, and probably never even happened. He was released from prison in 2003. Oftentimes, it's not just the confession that's wrong about these cases. There's also forensic science mistakes, botched analyses that go along with the false confessions. A lot of these scientists fall prey to confirmation bias, where knowing there's a confession leads to them making an incorrect inference about the data, or in some cases, changing the outcome of an analysis to match the confession. 17% of latent fingerprint experts change their results to match prints after they're told that there's been a confession. If you're still not convinced, there's a boatload of research Saul Kassin has done that shows how susceptible we all are to false confessing to things we didn't do. One of my favorite experiments was that of the computer crash paradigm. It was a laboratory study conducted where participants were told that they had to type out what was dictated to them by a research assistant. They were told to never hit the alt key as it would crash the computer. At a certain point, the computer is deliberately turned off remotely and the research assistant, who is obviously in on the experiment, pretends the participant hit the alt key. The experimenter writes up a confession for the innocent participant to sign, saying they had hit the alt key, causing the computer to crash. There were a couple different conditions that were associated with different outcomes, so I'll explain those first. There was a fast and slow typing condition where the research assistant read out the script at different speeds. This manipulated participants' vulnerability by controlling their belief that they might have actually made a mistake. There was also a witnessed condition, where half of the participants were told that the research assistant saw them hit the alt key. 69% of participants overall signed the written confession. 28% internalized their guilt, meaning they actually believed that they hit the alt key. 9% confabulated details to fit their false belief that they had caused the computer to crash. The most vulnerable group was the fast typing false evidence group, where 100% of them signed the confession. This supports the idea that when presented with false evidence, people can be induced to internalize guilt and falsely confess to an event with which they were not involved. Given the right combination of techniques, just about anyone can be worn down enough to say almost anything. Put someone under enough stress, combined with isolation, confinement, threats to themselves or loved ones, minimization of sensory stimuli, and complete control and domination by investigators creates the perfect storm for a false confession to be elicited. Many suspects will exhibit a wide range of behavioral and psychological disturbances under those circumstances, including a loss of contact with reality. In that state, I'm willing to bet that even you would be willing to say just about anything to get out. So how do we fix this? Well, the good news is that there's been a large effort by forensic psychologists and researchers to educate police officers, interrogators, and lawyers about the factors that make suspects more vulnerable to making false confessions. These factors include diminished capacity, mental impairments, deficient intelligence, fear, confusion, suggestibility, low self-esteem, anxiety, and being a juvenile. 
Other influential situational factors include duress, coercion, isolation, lengthy interrogation times, and questionable interview techniques. Forensic psychologists recommend against the read technique in favor of less guilt-assumed methods, where the goal is to learn the truth, not just to get a confession. Forensic psychologists also advocate for mandatory electronic recordings of interrogations, which have been shown to decrease the number of false confessions and increase the reliability of confessions as evidence. There's also a push to encourage prosecutors to consider the literature on false confession research and evaluate a confession's reliability prior to moving forward with criminal charges or a trial. There are already successful programs in the U.S. that retrain officers to use better methods of interrogation, and the hope is that they will become the new norm in the future. Thank you for listening to episode 12. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Hit that subscribe button so that you can have access to the newest episodes right when they come out. You can listen to the Forensic Files on the website at the-forensic-files.captivate.fm, which is linked in the episode notes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can find me on Instagram at the Forensic Files Pod. Please reach out if you have any questions, corrections, suggestions, or requests. The email for this podcast is the forensic files pod at gmail.com. Please leave me a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, so more amazing people can find this podcast. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear in the episode was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young.